We started in a series in Matthew earlier, and uh, we looked already this uh, fall at uh, what is one of the typical texts that we look at at Christmas, which is uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. And I'll read that. Um, It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So this time of year we... You know, we celebrate this event of God entering into space and time. And it's one of those things that we become so familiar with that I think it can lose its sense of awe. And uh, to me, one of the things that helps me to get my mind a little bit in a place where I think it should be when I'm thinking about this event is to think about the kind of vastness of the universe. And Sue, if you want to put a couple pictures up here. Um, and maybe cut the lights uh, up front here so people can see a little bit better. But uh, this is our Milky Way galaxy. A picture it from the side. And uh, astrophysicists and astro- astronomers tell us now that there are approximately 200 billion stars just in our galaxy. Okay, this is the Milky Way galaxy, 200 billion stars in this galaxy. Our star is one of those stars in the galaxy. And this is a different picture, and this is where we are in this galaxy. This galaxy, from side to side, if you are traveling at the speed of light and left now, 100,000 years later, basically, you would cross it to the other side. So that is our galaxy, right? And astronomers tell us, basically, that the universe, the entire universe, now the estimate, is made up of one to two trillion galaxies, okay? So this is, we are just one of one to two trillion galaxies. So next picture. This is a picture of just some of the stars and galaxies out there in the universe, and then that little area where we just see it as a flash of light in the middle then is expanded, and then you can keep kind of doing that. And then next slide, this is a conceptual picture of the universe. It's not to scale, obviously. In the center is our solar system, and then it goes out. Um, Astrophysicists and astronomers tell us that the universe right now, the estimate is 93 billion light years across. And that's the observable universe. There are some that estimate that the universe is actually 250 times larger than that. Okay, you get to think of these sizes, and to me, my head just, you know, basically implodes. I have no concept of how massive this thing that we are in is. But the amazing thing is the observable universe right now 
it's only 4% of what astrophysicists say exists out there. There's what they call dark energy, which makes up 73% of the universe, and dark matter, which is another 23% of the universe that's out there. So we actually can only observe 4%, maybe 5% of this universe. So that gives you kind of a picture of how big this thing is that we are in. And then we as Christians would say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by that Word. So we're talking about relating to a God who, with a Word, spoke this thing into existence. So does that give you a sense of tremendous smallness as you look at, at life? In Psalm 8, David says, what is a human being that you even care about him or her? What does it matter? You realize we're a little speck on a little speck of a planet in a speck of the Milky Way galaxy in the midst of 93 billion light years. And that, to me, can do two things. It can do one thing that says, okay, what's the point? Nothing really matters. You can get really nihilistic about that. Or it can astound you like it astounded David, and he said, yet you've made human beings a little lower than the gods, and you've crowned them with glory and majesty and honor that somehow in the midst of the immensity of what God has made, he thinks and he cares about us, and we're an amazing piece of this creation, so amazing that we're the only thing that is created in his image. So there's this tension of this massive God that we worship, yet he's invested us with glory and honor just as human beings. But to me, that leads to a further tension that I struggle with. And as we think about Christmas and as we look at the world out there, you can say, okay, if this God is as almighty and massively powerful as he must be to create a universe like this with a word, why in the world is life still so messy if he has come to be God with us? If he is here in this world as God with us, why is it not just a whole lot better? Because you would, you know, I can't even begin to comprehend the amount of power this being has. And so I would think if this being with this much power enters into space and time, man, shouldn't just blow everybody away. And so I think we all have expectations of what God should do, would he show up on this planet? How he would react, how he would use some of this massive power to transform our world. And I think we have expectations of what that God should do, and oftentimes when we look around in the world and God is not doing what we expect, it's real easy for us just to bail on God. 
If I was God, I would do it this way. I would show my power this way. And we look at life, and it's not often going in the way that we think it should, and there's so much injustice, and there's so much problems out there. It's like, if God really showed up in the form of a human being, why is it so messed up still? And as I look at Scripture more and more, I've become aware that God does not meet my expectations. Scriptures tell me this, but it's hard for me to realize this, right? God's ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts, but I often think they should be, right? (laughs) He should do things like I want him to do, but I look even at this event that we celebrate at Christmas as God kind of breaking my expectations of how a God should, that's that powerful, that's that massive, should respond as he enters into space and time because God created both space and time so he's outside of this immense thing that he even created and there's a whole spiritual realm. And and so the farther you get, the bigger this God is and the more powerful he is and you're wondering, what in the heck, why is he not acting in a way that would just immediately transform everything? So I wanted to look just briefly at this little statement, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's taken from Isaiah 7. And the situation in Isaiah 7 was there was King Ahaz, and this is after the north and southern kingdom of Judah had split. There'd been a civil war, right? And Ahaz was being attacked by the northern kingdom, or what's called Israel, an alliance with Syria, and they were going to take him down. He was really nervous. Isaiah 7 says he was shaken like a tree in the wind. So he thinks, man, it's going to go really poorly, right? He'd already been in a battle once and had lost, and so he's nervous. And so God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and says to Ahaz, hey, We've got this, ask for a sign. And Ahaz really piously says, oh, I will never put the Lord to the test. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Behold, a virgin or an alma, a young maiden will conceive. And before that child's old enough to know right and wrong, these two kingdoms that are coming at you will be taken care of. And that that is the passage that Matthew pulls into his first chapter. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And as we've been going through Matthew, we've realized Matthew will pull out a passage from the Old Testament that's not kind of like a literal fulfillment, but a type or a picture. So I think what he's doing here is in the Old Testament, there was this picture, and there was an immediate fulfillment. And in that passage in Isaiah That word Alma does not necessarily mean a virgin. It could just be a young maiden. That by that time that young maiden got married and had a baby, the problems that you are facing in the north would be gone. And I think there was an immediate fulfillment of that. That happened. And then Matthew picks that up as a type, as a picture, and he says, okay, this same thing is going to happen. There's going to be a child that's born that will deal with all the problems and all the difficulties, and he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And it's really clear from the New Testament that this was a virginal conception. But that may not have happened in the Old Testament. That word can be used both ways there. But to me, the authors of the New Testament make it really clear this is a virginal conception. This is an immaculate conception, but it was not an immaculate birth. As Jesus entered into space and time, he did it in a way that was very kind of not expected. And I look at this, God with us does not feel the need to constantly wow us with his glory and his power. 
You look at the circumstances of his birth. Who was he born to? Kind of a no-name, Palestinian couple, not even married yet, right? And they go to register for the census, and there's not even room in the house, and likely end up probably not, you know, in a stable, but in a cave where they kept animals and had to give birth to this child, right? And you read Isaiah 53 that tells us he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. If I'm the God of the universe setting up my entrance into this world, I'm going to come into this world ripped and stunning looking. As a baby, I'm going to have a six-pack. You know, that's not what happened. It says he had no beauty. So, you know, all the pictures you see of Jesus, he's a pretty good-looking dude, right? And it's like, no, that's probably not. He was not the top ten best-looking dude in Israel, right? It mentions periodically in the Old Testament, man, David was a really good-looking dude. Saul was ahead above everybody else, but it doesn't say that about Jesus. In fact, it says... Yeah, he was probably more on the homely side of things than the really physically impressive side of things. And he came, and for the majority of his life, he didn't wow anybody, right? He was just, we say often, you know, a carpenter. You've seen the bumper sticker, you know, my boss is a you know, Jewish carpenter. And we hear that word carpenter, but the challenge with that is there's not a whole lot of wood where Jesus grew up. The word that's used there is tecton, um, means builder generally. We get our work, word architect from that. Archi meaning chief, tecton, builder. So the architect is the chief builder. They don't do that right now. They just design unless you're a design build person. But the reality is Jesus was a tecton and probably more of a stonemason than a builder. He was a manual laborer. And the majority of his life, he just got up, went to work, worked hard, got exhausted, smashed his fingers probably periodically, and dealt with just hard work in life. That's not how you would expect the God of the universe that created all that to come in. He'd have a position of power and authority when he says, jump, you jump, and ask how high as you're going up, right? That's what you'd expect in the second century, a Roman philosopher, Celsus, in denigrating Jesus, says, man, Jesus, why would you listen to him? He's just a tecton. He's just a manual laborer. He's not even from the elite aristocracy of our society that can spend time thinking deep thoughts all the time. He's worried about, how am I going to get this stone up to the next level? Is this foundation solid? Those kind of things. And then you see who was at the birth of the entrance of this being into space and time. The other Gospels tell us that it was just shepherds. And if you know anything about shepherds at the time of Jesus, they were not the most reputable crowd. They were known for their carousing and their thievery. Their testimony was not even valid in a court of law. That's what they were thought of. And who do the angels announce the birth to? It's a group of these shepherds, these people that you would say, no, nah, that's like, no, announce it to the Pharisees and the chief priests and the leaders in Jerusalem. Maybe some kind of a miraculous thing to Caesar would be awesome. And the birth is just unnoticed by almost everybody. Even the leaders in Jerusalem did not take the 10 mile or so journey down to Bethlehem to investigate these things. 
And the other guys that show up, and it's a little later, not at the birth, were these magi, these Babylonian wise men that weren't even kind of the right religious group, and they come and they understand, wow, this Jesus, he's the one that's born king of the Jews. And as you go through Jesus' life, it seems like he's like purposely trying to hold back on displaying the majesty of who he is. Whenever he heals somebody, he's like, what does he say? <laughs> Don't tell anybody, right? Don't tell anybody. I don't want this to get out, right? And we see it in the beginning of Luke. You know, he was healing all these people and he's bringing life and a foretaste of the kingdom and everybody's lining up and his disciples are like, come on, Jesus, let's go back to town. We got to put on a show. And what does Jesus say? Hey, that's not why I came. I come to preach the good news of the kingdom and I've got to go share that good news with other people. So let's move on. But when the people come and they want to make him king by force because he's fed them all, he says what? You're just here because you want another free meal. And Jesus could provide another free meal. But instead of doing that, he says something strange and pushes so many people away. He says, basically, I'm the bread of life. I'm what nourishes you. You've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And to a Jew, that would be, this is, astro- I've been told not to touch blood, drink blood, eat an animal that's got blood in it from the time I've been this tall, and then here this Jesus is. And so he's like almost seeming to, to put distance between him and this conception of him as the almighty God. And then he shares so much in parables, right? These stories that leave everybody scratching their head. It's like, why don't you put it on the bottom shelf, Jesus? Just make it clear to everybody. But I think one of the central points of the scriptures is that God desires a relationship with us that's loving and it's freely given by us. And I thought about that. A God that is as big as the God that would create the universe that we're in, how does he enter into human beings' lives in a way that just does not floor them and overwhelm them and just, okay, I will do whatever it takes because you're so massive? How do we get to a point where we can freely offer this, I desire a relationship with you, God, without being overwhelmed? And we see a couple pictures of the overwhelming nature of Jesus. We see it in the transfiguration, and he only takes some of his choice disciples up on the mountain. And when he appears in his glorious state with Moses and Elijah, what happens? They faint, right? They go down. And then they get up, and Peter can't shut up. And basically the father says, hey, Peter, shut up. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You've listened to Moses, you've listened to Elijah, but I'm telling you, somebody is on the scene right now that dwarfs them. You listen to him first and foremost. And then John, the man that was amazed that Jesus loved him, he says, I'm the disciple that Jesus, I can't believe he loves someone like me. Jesus described James and John as the sons of thunder, right? And it's a great name for like a biker gang, you know, where they're saying, you know, those were the kind, of, and Jesus loved him, and he was amazed by that. And he was the one that would be close to Jesus and share intimately with Jesus. And when Jesus shows up in Revelation as this glorified God, what happens to John, this person that maybe was closer with Jesus than anybody else? Bam, he goes down, he's floored. 
So when God comes into the world, he wants us to come to him, to relate to him. There's some desire in God that he wants to be sought. He wants us to move towards him. And if he simply overwhelms us with how big he is and massive he is and as powerful he is, that would not be done out of our desire. We'd be forced to respond just by the nature of who he is. In Isaiah 9, a little bit later, it's the famous passage that, it's in Handel's Messiah, you know. He'll be called what? Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The child that comes is called Almighty God and Everlasting Father. And okay, how does this might work as it comes into this world and is God with us? Because I think if I had that kind of might, I would immediately eliminate every obstacle, challenge, problem in my life. I'm having problems with somebody, I would just be like, okay, God, bring them to their knees. Bring them crawling up to me, saying how wonderful I am and how right I am, and in every way, righting all of these social wrongs that are out there. But I think that Jesus shows us that when God shows up and is with us, his might is not primarily displayed through amazing victories but it's displayed through going through all the difficulties of life and ultimately coming out on the other side and emerging victorious. It's not by his capacity to overcome hardship, but his willingness to go through hardship that his might and his power is shown. And that's not shown anywhere more evidently than on the cross. Where he was willing, this is the God of the universe. He said, I could call legions of angels and they would take everybody out, but I'm not going to do that because that's not my purpose in coming. You can look out and you can look at the universe and you can be amazed by the awesomeness of God, but that's not going to draw you into a relationship with him. What draws us in is to recognize that this God that's so immense is so caring as well and is willing to go through the difficulty and pain of living on this planet it's a struggle to figure out why is there so much evil in this world, but one thing that I know is that Jesus was willing to take the medicine of living on this broken planet. That he went through all of it, and probably in a way deeper and much more difficult than I will ever experience in life. And so we read passages like Colossians 1, this prayer where Paul says, I want you to be strengthened with all his glorious might and power. It's like, okay, glorious. And I say this, and it's like, why? So that you'll have patience and you'll endure. And it's like, ah, no, I don't want patience. I don't want to endure. I want to zap all my problems away. I want to have complete victory in every area. I want my life to be pain-free, sickness-free, no problems whatsoever. And God says, "Mm, no, I'm going to walk through all those things generally with you. And I'm not saying God doesn't heal and doesn't work in miraculous ways, but it seems to me and my experience in life is his general plan is to walk through those difficulties with us, not to take those difficulties away. I've seen healing in my family's life. I've seen people that have gone to get an MRI, a mass in the brain, and then gone to a second one after being prayed for, and that mass is gone. So I know God can do that stuff, but it seems to me as I walk through life, that's generally not how he responds. That you realize when Jesus left a town, he left a whole lot of people that had not yet been healed in that town. 
I was reading the beginning of Revelation, and this is what John says. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulations and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Again, that sense of God doesn't wipe all the problems away, but he says, you know what? I'm going to be with you in the midst of these problems. I will help you endure them. And sometimes enduring them is going to take all my might and strength, that strength that created this whole thing for you to walk through those, and I am with you, but I'm probably not going to immediately take those away. So that, to me, is the main issue in terms of how we expect God to work and he works in a way that kind of seems to downplay his power and glory often in our lives. But I don't think in one sense it's downplayed, it's worked in a different way in our lives at this point in time. Scriptures are clear, Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, he's righting every wrong, he's taking down every opponent, but that's not where we are right now. Right now, Peter says there are people even in the first century are saying, where's Jesus coming? Hadn't he come back yet? And he says, God's not slow in keeping his promise, but he's patient, longing for all people to come to repentance. So when God doesn't zap and work out all these details right now, recognize that's an evidence of his patience as he works with people. And I say that I'm really thankful that God was patient with me because there's a long chunk of my life where I was like... Forget that. I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. I don't need God involved. And he didn't go. The God that made that didn't go, you little speck on this little speck. I'm. No. He was gracious and patient with me. And then the second thing that I see is that God with us, when he's with us, he doesn't right all wrongs and remove all problems yet. I think about this at the birth, Right? after the child was born and then they're living at home and then they get news that, you know what, Herod's going to come and he wants to take this child out because the Magi didn't go back to him and report all the details, so he's coming to take every child under two out. And I'm like, why in the world does God not take Herod out? Why don't you just kill him? And there's all sorts of stuff. You know, there's the corrupt religious leaders. There's all this stuff that's going on. And if the king has arrived, why has he not zapped all opponents? And that was the disciples' problem too, right? Their expectation was, well, the kingdom's here. Let's set it up. I want to be your right and left-hand guy, and we're going to rule, and it's going to be awesome. And so Jesus, in front of one of the power brokers of his day, says, yeah, are you a king? And he says, yeah, but my kingdom is not yet of this world, I think. It's arrived, but it's not fully inaugurated yet. So God is working, and one day the kingdom of our God will become the kingdom of the earth, right? Handel's Messiah, again, as heaven and earth come together, the presence of God in this perfect cube city, a picture of the Holy of Holies from the Old Testament, God's presence with his people, but we're not there yet. So we're walking in the midst of this brokenness, being given his light, and God gives us periodic appetizers of the kingdom, I think tastes of his glory where we see him working and where we experience his presence in a felt palpable way, but those are just appetizers right there. I don't know about you, but I don't walk constantly in that awareness of, oh, you know, every moment of every day, just astounded by everything. It's like, I need to be reminded constantly of that. The Lord's Prayer your kingdom come, your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven, even though the king has come. His will is not fully yet accomplished on this planet. One day it will be, but right now is this time of his grace and patience. We long for this, 
And we as Christians expect that one day it will be taken care of, but right now, God with us does not remove all the evil and the difficulties. God with us also doesn't make life comfortable and easy yet. Right? I think Mary experienced pain in the birth of her child. Um, I have a queasy stomach, and when my children were born, oftentimes I was out in the other room with a nurse saying, hey, why don't you have a little soda here to get your blood sugar up so you can go back in there for that. Right? Almost shortly after the child was born, they have to flee in refugee status down to Egypt, right? They come back, and there's political problems, there's opposition, there's all sorts of stuff going on. Jesus says to his disciples that follow him later, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. We want life to be comfortable, right? I do, you know. And the promise is that one day that will be, right? He's going to wipe away every tear, you know, in your presence, fullness of joy and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. I want that. My problem is I want it right now. And God says, no, that's coming, right? Right now, it's going to be challenging. It's going to be difficult, but I will walk through all of that stuff with you. Also, God with us to me, when he's with us, it doesn't seem that he's in much of a hurry. And you look at this life, you're entering into this world and you chose to enter into this world as just an embryo, dependent completely on a teenage mom. Is she going to take her prenatal vitamins? Do they even have prenatal vitamins? What's her diet going to be like? How am I going to, all these kind of things. It's like, if I'm entering into space and time as the son of God, I'm probably, I'm not going to go through that whole process. I'm just going to appear from some mountain somewhere, walk down, and wow, everybody. Yet Jesus walks into this world as an infant, completely dependent on his mom. Had to have his diaper changed. Had to learn the language, all of this. And this is the God of the universe. Scriptures tell us he grew in wisdom and in stature. He didn't arrive instantaneously super mature with every set of knowledge in his head. He, Philippians 2 says he, he divested himself of that glory and he took the form of a servant and goes through everything that human beings go through as they grow and change and develop. Working 30 years as a manual laborer, it's like, really? I mean, maybe at you know, age 23, it's like, okay, Father, let's get on with the program. <laughs> it's a rough day, my calluses are bleeding, and I want to get on with this. Like, no, you got a few more years, just go to work tomorrow. And I'm sure you had crotchety coworkers like we can have, and just living life in that way. And it's a long, long time of his life that he was just working. And I don't think he got up every morning and said, oh, my work fulfills me. This is what my life is about. It's like, yeah. Gonna chisel some stone today, maybe make a door frame or something like that, but it was just work. And then you see as he works with his disciples that when they enter into a relationship with him, the transformation is not instantaneous, right? It's a slow process. These guys generally are knuckleheads like we all are as we begin to follow Jesus and we make more stumbles probably than right moves at first, but then God in his grace and glory works in us, patiently developing us. And we recognize we're in a spiritual battle and Jesus says to Peter, hey man, Satan wants to sift all of you guys and I prayed for you. What does he pray for him? That his faith wouldn't fail. Not that he wouldn't fail. 
And shortly after, he, he, Peter's like, I'm never going to deny you. And Jesus said, ah, tonight, three times, bud. And one of those times was just to a young girl. And it's like, come on, where, where's the braggadocious Peter, you know? And Jesus doesn't give up on Peter. He says, when you return, strengthen your brothers. Help them to know that my grace is available to people to fail. And I don't give up on people that fail. It's a long process, and it's sometimes a tedious process, but I don't give up because I'm not a God who's in a hurry. God with us, the main thing he does, Matthew tells us, is that he rescues us from our sin and ourselves. We have a bent in life that's towards wanting to be our own boss, our own king. We want to say, man, that whole thing should probably revolve around me. Probably when you walked in this door this morning, you were, unless you're really holy, you were thinking about yourself and what's going on in your world and your life. And we all understand that, right? But then we realize, you know what, there's, there's a bigger thing out there, and it's a whole lot bigger. <laughs> it's a whole lot bigger than me and the world that I think should revolve around me. It's this world that God's created, and he wants me to revolve around him. And as we've been going and looking at the Sermon on the Mount, for my life to be molded and shaped by these ethics of the kingdom, of what God's kingdom is to be like. But we're not there, right? And so that sermon begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that recognize that they have a need for God. And this is offensive to our culture, you know? Unto us is born a child in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. I don't need no Savior, thank you. I've got this dialed in on my own. So there's a huge step of humility that we have to take and say, you know what, I don't have what is necessary in myself to dial all of this in. I need a Savior, right? She will bear a son, verse 21 of Matthew 1, and you shall name him Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. So our primary need is not that everything would be righted around us in our lives. Our primary need is that we would be righted, that our hearts would be transformed, that we would be forgiven and changed from the inside out. Remember the story of the guys that are bringing their paralytic friend to Jesus, and they take all the stuff off the roof, and they lower him down in there, and what does Jesus say? It's like, hey man, your first and foremost need is to get this paralysis out of your life. Then you'll be able to coast freely. Now, what does he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's up in arms like, ah, who is this guy? Why is he talking about sin? Obviously, they're not here to get this guy's sins forgiven. They're, they're here to get this guy up and walking again. But Jesus says, well, just to let you know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, take your mat, and get out of here. So what does that say? To me, that tells me that our primary need is to be made whole and cleansed of our sin, not necessarily to have all my physical problems taken away in life. Jesus has come to be with us first and foremost to rescue us from our sins so that I can rest my head on the pillow at night and say, you know, Lord, I sometimes made a mess of it today, but I thank you for your grace and forgiveness, and I'm coming to you once again to ask your forgiveness and help me to change from the inside out. And as we've been looking on the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's all interior stuff, right? Jesus wants our heart to be transformed and changed 
It's not about the external behavior because the external behavior will follow where my heart is. So Jesus works at that heart transformation and he says, you know what, you can't change that yourself. You need a heart transplant, basically. You need a new spirit and a new heart to take out that stony heart of rebellion and for me to put in that heart of flesh that's sensitive to the work of God in your life. As I look at the immensity of that, one of the things in my life that that does is it creates a sense of distance between me and God. It's like if God is that big, how in the world? But to me, as God enters in as Emmanuel, God with us, to me it tells me that A, he cares, and B, he wants to be approached. He's massive in his amount of power, but he wants to be approached by us. And to me, as you look at this in Luke 174, it's Zechariah's prophecy, and he says, this Jesus that's coming is going to enable us to serve God without fear. And there's a sense in which, yes, we should have awe about this God, but not a cowering fear. That's not how God wants us to relate to him. And to me, you look at a baby, what's more approachable than a baby? I've never gone into a baby's presence and said, oh man, this baby doesn't get at me. You know, it's no, it's like, And then throughout his life, Jesus seemed to be just an ordinary guy, and it seemed like he would attract people, he would be God with people that you wouldn't think would be with God, right? It was people like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, a chief traitor in that culture. And he says, hey man, I want to have lunch at your house today. And uh, eat a meal with someone in that culture indicated acceptance and love. And so he says, I want to show my acceptance and love to someone like you. And to prostitutes and to sinners. And the religious world was up in arms like, what are you doing, Jesus? You are just totally hanging out with the wrong people. And Jesus says, these are the people, this is my people. This is who I've come for, Right? I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've not come to call those that think they've got it all together. I've come to call those that realize they have a need. And that's who I'm reaching out to. And he tells a parable about a banquet where he's inviting all the right people. And they're like, ah, I don't really have time for you, Jesus. And so Jesus says, you go out, my servants, and you bring everybody in, the good and the bad alike. And if they come, they're part and welcome in my banquet. The book of Hebrews says that Because of Jesus, we can approach God with boldness and confidence. We can approach that God that created that immensity of the universe with boldness and confidence. Why? Because Jesus has made a way. He is God with us. He knows what it's like to be a human being. He recognizes the temptations that we face and he does not reject us when even we fail in the midst of those temptations. And he's reaching out and he wants us to seek and reach out to him as well. And the last thing I want to say about God with us is that he's God with us forever. The end of Matthew's gospel is what? I'll do King James. Like, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This God that is willing to come and be with us when we are with him, he is with us to the very, very end. I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Anyone who comes to me, I in no way will cast aside. 
But to me, the thing is, we got to go. We got to be willing to press into Jesus. And it's like, I don't really understand that. And so some people said, ah, forget it. I'm just leaving them behind. And Jesus, the ones are like, what, what do you mean by that? What? And you read the scriptures, and there's a lot of things at first. You're like, what in the world? How does this fit? Oh, okay, press in. Push forward. You're not going to have instant answers. This is going to be a lifelong process of growing in our knowledge and understanding and grace of Jesus Christ. But he's available for that. He came to this little speck of a planet in our little speck of a galaxy in the midst of the massiveness of this universe to let you and me know that he loves and he cares for each one of us. And somehow that is so, why, how, what, why are you, what are you thinking about me for? I'm just here for a brief moment in time. I'm like a flower, the psalmist says. Just fades away. Petals fall off and I'm gone. Three weeks later, the flowers, my wife, I gave to my wife that time. I said, like, oh, babe, I gave you flowers three weeks ago. She's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's not flowers today. But God says, I value you enough to enter into space and time to visit this planet, ultimately to give my life so that you could have life. And that's available to all. All who will be willing to seek Christ, to come to him, to acknowledge their need, that they are sinners. They want to rule their own lives and, and to recognize that and just admit that and say, God, I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. I want to orient my life around you instead of looking at my life solely orienting around me. And he says, I know. You're the kind of person that I died for. It's all about his stuff, all about his way, all about doing his own thing but I'm willing to change you to make you the kind of person that I designed you to be, an image bearer of mine, living with love and grace and forgiveness and mercy and kindness and justice towards all people that I put in your path. That's what I want for you. And that's what he wants for all of us. But we gotta come. We gotta be willing to make that journey. So many in Jesus' day weren't. They looked at superficial things and said, forget it. This is not what I expect of God. If this is the God of the universe that's entering into space and time, he's certainly making a mess of it. He's not doing anything that he should do, right? And Jesus comes to let us know God's way is not our way. His thoughts, his plans, his purposes for my life and for your life are not exactly what we would think because we want him to act in a particular way. And he says, no, I, I've actually got a better way and you'll see that, but it's not seeing it instantaneously because sometimes there's discomfort, there's pain, there's difficulty and challenges, but I am with you in the midst of this and I'm never gonna leave you and I'm never gonna forsake you. So keep walking with me. And one day I will right every wrong. One day I am returning in my glory. And we, like John, I think we'll all be face down as the power of the creator of all things comes in in his glory and says, I'm here. And we have a choice now whether we acknowledge that or we will acknowledge it later. Paul says in Philippians that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus as Christ. We all will stand before the God of this universe and give an account of ourselves. And most people in our culture say, well, when we're done, we're just done. We just check out, we become warm food, consciousness ends, and it's all 
over with. What scripture teaches is that's not true. We will all stand before the living God of this universe that loves us but wants us to come to that place where we will love him willingly and acknowledge our need for him. So my prayer is that you have done that this morning and that more and more you experience God with you in the midst of the brokenness of this world. Not necessarily as he takes all the problems away, but as his presence is with you. And Jesus in Matthew says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I think most people in our culture feel pretty burdened by life, right? Jesus says, come, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls. Not necessarily for your bodies, but for your souls. Is your soul at rest this morning? Is there a peace that you have with this God of the universe? That's my prayer for you. I've lived since 1985 in relationship with this God. And he has been good to me every step of the way. It has not been easy. There have been challenges and there have been struggles. There's been habitual sin in my life that I've struggled with that God in his grace slowly over time has worked on and he's never given up on me. And you know what? I have that hope that one day he's coming back and man, all this stuff, all the pain, all the difficulty will be done. But I've also had the joy of being able to put my head down on the pillow at night and said, you know what? As the hymn writer said, it's well with my soul right now. There's a rest, there's a peace that I have. You know what? I seriously would not trade for the wealth of Elon Musk at this point in time. You can't buy it. Jesus says, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? All right, you got a bumper year, man. You got 10 mils set in the bank. You're golden, right? And he says, yep, okay. When are you checking out? A friend of mine we met this week and he was driving home and he showed me a picture. I'm a car guy of this brand new Lamborghini that was just bright yellow, just in pieces. And he said the guy had obviously not known how to drive this car well enough and coming down 10, it crossed over in the center and just the car had spun around and it's all made of carbon fiber and it just is in all pieces and the guy was just standing next to his car. He said it didn't hit anybody, you know, it just, the wheels were off, just like, wow, that's a bad day, right? That stuff, all that stuff, oh, it's fun for a while, but it's not rest for our souls. And my prayer this time of year is that you would know the peace, that the Prince of Peace, that Prince, can give to you. You can even do it in the quietness of your heart even now. And we don't push for this, but it is a choice that we have to make, period, at some point in our life. We have to acknowledge, God, I'm going to let you rule my life. I trust in Jesus Christ and I believe in what he's done and I acknowledge that I have a need for that forgiveness in my life and so I'm giving my life to you. I want to follow you. And when we do that, God says he adopts us into his family. And we are secure in that love and he's never going to leave us. Are we going to stumble? Yeah. James says we stumble in many ways. So if you come to church, don't expect there's going to be a lot of other perfect people around you because Jesus seemed to attract the wrong crowd and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's not 
too far from home, right? But you're loved. You're loved deeply by a God that is immensely, immensely massive and powerful. May you know his peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you were willing to send your son, part of this complex unity that we call the Trinity, into space and time that you created to enter into relationship with us. Lord, we've made a mess of this green-blue planet that you have given to us. We ask for your forgiveness for that, and most of all, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for seeking to be our own kings and lords and queens of our lives. Lord, how massive you are, and as we look at our lives, what are, you, what are we that you care about us? Yet, Lord, we are loved by you. You have chosen to create us in your image, so we thank you for that. Lord, may we walk with you in humility. May we walk with you seeking justice, loving mercy, and just in humility. We thank you for this time of year that we remember what lengths you were willing to go to seek and to save those of us who were wandering around, no particular direction to go, no hope, no meaning, no purpose, yet you have rescued us. You have saved us. And Lord, that hurts our pride, but it is what we need to hear. So we thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you that you are God with us. Help us to be with you. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.